Well, congregation, we praise God for his work of raising up his servants to come and to bring his word, and we thank the Lord for his work in Anthony's heart. We look forward to that kind work in the years to come. Beloved, this morning, let's open the Bible again, and we are in Jonah. We've come to the fourth chapter of this 32nd volume of God's Ways. What a blessing to know of our God through all of the scripture, and I trust we have been enriched by, um, again, submitting ourselves to his ways found here in his word. So to chapter 4. And really we come to the central matter of the whole book as we will see it this morning in chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? As far, dear congregation, the word of the living God, and he provides richly for his people. Let's come now, bow before him and ask for the help of his spirit as we continue this morning in his word. Let's pray. O most gracious and powerful God, we submit ourselves to you this day, knowing that you are tender and merciful and kind and long-suffering. And Lord, that is of great significance because you are also just and perfect, pure, righteous, and holy. And so we pray, Lord, that we might understand, that we might come to a real knowledge of your person and your nature from the study of this book. Lord, that we might come to know you. Grant your Spirit's aid and help this morning, for apart from his intercessory work of our minds and our hearts, we would know nothing. And so grant us power to know you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 3 was Jonah's best chapter. Now we move on. Each chapter has revealed how good God is. He is wise and patient. He is holy and powerful. God is able to powerfully and accurately distinguish thoughts and attitudes of the heart. He controls all of creation and brings all things together in such a way to bring glory to his own name in the salvation of sinners. Chapter 4. But what about Jonah? You know the namesake of volume 32 of God's Ways. What here do we learn about Jonah? Jonah seems more interested in his comfort level than in the salvation of more than 120,000 people. In a day in which the majority, the vast majority of the citizens of the world lived in exceedingly small communities of a few people to at most a few hundred people, a city of this size was New York and Los Angeles and Tokyo and Hong Kong and London all mashed together. What does God think? As we stand at the cusp of taking the Lord's Supper, you see it in front of your eyes again this morning, we need to be amazed at God and ashamed at man. You see, the Lord uses means to rebuke the wretched lack of pity in his prophet. Now, I'm going to say this, we may not like that as the theme statement of this chapter, and that's exactly part of the lesson. The Lord uses means to rebuke the wretched lack of pity in his prophet. To get get at that from the text, then, these three points. When good theology crashes against a hard heart. Second, provision, prosecution's primary piece of evidence. And then the third, you pitied a vine, I pitied a people. The Lord uses means to rebuke the wretched lack of pity in his prophet. Well, we begin with this consideration when good theology crashes against a hard heart. The Hebrew language has a word which to our eyes, if I were to hold up an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper with only that Hebrew word, Uh, printed on it, it would look to you like a hockey stick upside down, the, the business end at the top. We would be holding it that way. This little word in the Hebrew, it is a conjunction, is often very significant. Often it comes into the English, like in verse 1 of chapter 4, as our English word, but. It is often a word used in the Hebrew to turn the tables To say something else has been going on, but now all of a sudden we're going to have a hard right turn. Now notice this and what we have to struggle with here. In chapter 3 and verse 10, God relented and didn't destroy Nineveh. But Jonah was very angry about it. And we learn for sure in verse 2 of chapter 4 why. We learn why when God said go east, Jonah boarded a ship and went west. We learn why. He says it plainly. 
And then the rest of verse 2, now note this, the rest of verse 2 is Reformed Biblical Orthodoxy. In the right sense of the word, intellectually. Jonah mentions in the rest of verse 2, maybe in a loud weeping, uh, gushing of his voice, he, he cries out this theological statement about God. And, and Jonah is intellectually exactly right. He passes, Jonah does, the theological, intellectual, do you know facts about God test? The sort of tests that goes at the mind. Do you know truths about God? Jonah does. His brain, his gray matter, knows. That's what we read in verse 2. Make no mistake about it. He's exactly right. I know that you're a gracious and compassionate God. Yes, he is. Slow to anger and abounding love. That's exactly right. That you relent from sending calamity. That's just been proved. Jonah ticks off the boxes. He gets it all right in his mind. His gray matter, but his heart, his red matter, is stone cold. All stop, accept this. He hates the Ninevites. There is a very, very powerful squeeze revealed here. Jonah feels as though he's in a vice, and it's only clamping down tighter and tighter. On the one hand, immovable is the truth that Jonah knows about God and the mind. His intellect is right. He grasps it. That's one half of the vice. The other half is his own heart where he has a hatred of these, his enemies, of Israel's enemies. He loathes them. He doesn't want good to come to them in any way whatsoever. And so he feels squeezed. There's no escape. He tried already and it was futile. Chapter 1. Chapter 2. We should be asking the question, what needs to happen for Jonah's heart to be broken? Well, that is exactly the issue of chapter 4, isn't it? What needs to happen for Jonah's heart to be broken with grief over the power of sin and the reality of hell? And then we begin to see the personal application of the book and now this fourth chapter, don't we? We need to ponder the question, beloved, what needs to happen for our hearts to be broken over the reality of sin and the certainty of hell? Because here it is. And so, beloved, I say to you and conclude myself in this, and I say it lovingly but firmly, I wonder if sometimes we, now corporately, are too comfortable. Well, that goes two ways. Too comfortable with who we are, on the one hand, and too comfortable with what happens to those who die in their sins, on the other hand. That is, do we have great brains and cold hearts? Now, let's just be honest. When a preacher comes to a text, the text 
rules. We don't create a sermon because we think we want to say something different, softer, in a, in a new way than the text says. We say it because this is what the text presents. And beloved, this is what God is saying to us in this text. But we probably don't like that question. Do we have good brains but cold hearts? We don't like the potentiality of feeling guilty. As we see with our eyes this morning, those elements prepared for us, the Lord's Supper, laying out there awaiting us, they make theological claims which our brains get, right? We understand something of the Father sending His Son who came and lived entirely obediently, who, who knew that before Him was the cross and the great torment and terror that was the cross so that in Gethsemane he prays sweating as it were drops of blood falling and an angel has to come and tend to him and we know all of that so that we might have our sins forgiven we we grasp it intellectually but do we also with our hearts we say with our minds the bread broken for us Christ's body pierced we grasp Christ's blood for us, poured out so that we might have forgiveness and cleansing. But are we overwhelmed in our hearts? Are we overflowing with thanksgiving for what it is Jesus Christ has done for us? Flowing with thanksgiving because we know ourselves to have been his enemies, as Romans makes so abundantly clear. And then do we consider, then do we consider that we want those same truths to be told and known by everybody around us? You see the tension of the vice. Jonah was like, well, that's good for Israel. All these facts are good for God's people, right? But oh, not for these other ones. They are our enemies. Do we believe the truth? And do we love the truth we believe? Jonah, if he were here this morning with us, sitting in the pew, would have to stand up and admit that at this moment, he didn't. Didn't love the truth that he knew. Well, let's see then provision, secondly, which is the prosecution's primary piece of evidence. And here it gets very interesting and helpful. But we need for a moment to run to the very end of this historical account. And I say that intentionally when I preach historical accounts so that we don't think Bible story as if it's in a storybook I can buy at the bookstore or order from Amazon. This is an historical account. Well, what happens at the end of it? God asks Jonah and us a question. Have you ever wrestled with this as you've read this 32nd volume? A question which goes unanswered. Why? I think at least it is because here God is acting as the prosecutor, and that verse 11 question is his closing argument. But a conviction will mean rebuke, and the rebuke is meant as a hammer to break Jonah's hard heart. He gets, God does, a conviction, but it is intended to bring about repentance, brokenness, 
And then a new reveling in the grace and mercy and the majestic kindness of God. And so the perfect prosecutor, God, presents provision. Provision as his primary piece of evidence. Now watch this. Verse 5. Jonah, borrowing from God's creation, creates by himself a shelter. Then in verses 6, 7, and 8, we are told God provided. But first, before we get to 6, 7, and 8, God provided, just go back and rest a minute, rest for a minute on verse 5. Because Jonah does something here that reflects what happened in the garden, and something, by the way, which happens again and again in the history of humanity. Jonah takes from what God has provided and he tries to create. He tries to make for himself a shelter. You see. Why? Well, because he wants to hide from the light. Now, we think sun, we think heat, we think blazing coming down from the sky that burns our head if we don't have a hat or some hair there to cover. You might know what that feels like more than I. But we need to realize that he's trying to hide from the light. Now, why do we put it that way? And by the way, notice what we have after God provides. Jonah's attempt wasn't very successful because he, after he made this, was still living, verse 6, in, it says, discomfort. His shelter was futile. Why is this important? Because it reflects back on what Adam and Eve tried to do in the garden when they wanted to hide, right? They tried fig leaves and sewed those together to see how that would work, to hide from the light. And you can imagine that and put into the category of this kind of using the creation to make something to appease a God and to hide from his wrath. You can think of that category as a summation of every false religion. Trying to hide by using parts and parcels of the created order to make something that will satisfy and appease and keep us safe. Now, we're not extending that too much, but we are rather showing the reality of what go, is going on here. Jonah's attempt is, again, futile. But not God's. God's efforts, God's work is always perfect. Verse 6, then the Lord God provided a vine to make it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy. It doesn't say he was happy before the vine, but now that God has provided shelter, he's very happy. Doesn't last long, verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. You see, beloved, God provided exactly what was needed in each step for his purpose so that Jonah would begin to learn. God sent a worm and wind, 
How sweeping is God's command of creation as shown to us in this volume of God's ways. Jonah, look how good God is by his provision. Well, now, Pastor, don't we mean just the vine? No. How good God is in his provision of the worm? How good God is in his provision of the scorching east wind, which we can think of in all sorts of ways being worked out in our lives, can't we? And then as we're thinking of how good God is in providing, immediately again do your eyes move from the word to the elements of the Lord's Supper that God has provided? Don't race past this. Isn't it true that his provision is also the primary piece of evidence to us of his goodness? But then also against us if we treat lightly and yawn and think in ho-hum terms about the reality of the greatness of his work of salvation. Every day we hear, every Sunday we hear the gospel, every Lord's Day. The Lord is the lead prosecutor in presenting evidence. We think of that in Jonah, the whole of the book. Write these down and think about them. From word to wind to storm to great fish to vine to worm And then you get back again where it began to wind and word again. A glorious presentation of God's ways so that we might be convinced that God provides, so that we might say the Lord is good, so that we might see that the Lord is good before in a moment we taste and see that the Lord is good. God is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. And you look and you see the representation, the picture elements, the sacraments are signs and seals of God's ways. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not withhold. He does not withhold poured out wrath. He pours it upon his son for us. Because we were his enemies. What we see primarily in this book is God proving, proving the mercy that will be fulfilled at the cross. And this is why the fourth chapter is really the center of the matter. A glorious truth which should cause our hearts to burn within us. So that when we leave this place after the second service, we say, oh, it was so of a blessing to be in God's house. But his salvation, we would then go on to say, is a salvation for millions of sinners if they would just turn and repent. Well, thirdly, you pitied a vine, I pitied a people. What pulls all of this together then is a tripart clinching question. Three different times, twice in almost synonymous language, and the last time in in an application language, God asks this question, Oh, Jonah, do you have a right? 
to be angry, that I show pity, that I have mercy. Verse 4, have you any right to be angry? Verse 9, do you have a right to be angry? Verse 11, should I not be concerned about this great city? Jonah, why are you angry about your physical discomfort? How human you are? How sinful? Beloved, the Lord does hear, and and perhaps what we are about to say is the most important truth to be learned from this whole 32nd volume of God's ways. The Lord does hear, show the greatness of his tender mercy in contrast to the gross selfishness of our fallenness. That's the whole book. But that is also the whole gospel, isn't it? Can we look at the text and see it? Yes. Can we look at the Lord's Supper and see it? Yes. Look again at the entire historical context, the accounting of God's interaction with Jonah and what we see. And we have to just say it. What we see in Jonah is a sinful, selfish, uncharitable, miserly, stingy man as opposed to our generous, benevolent, willing, lavish God. What is God doing? You look at these four chapters. He is commanding. He is controlling every aspect of his vast creation. Wind and wave and fish and produce and worm and all of that to cause his servants, us, to see his great mercy. The supper of grace before our eyes, soon to be savored in our mouths, is a rich display of what we learn here in his word about his character, about his attributes that have come to us in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would pray, and this would be one thing, one point of application immediately, oh, that we would pray That our every word and action and reaction would be powered, would be fueled by an acknowledgement and awareness of the mercy of God. That we would know his mercy. Live out of it. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45? Matthew 5, 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, and we don't often remember this part of that, we remember the first part, so that you may be brothers, that is brothers and sisters, of your Father in heaven. Have an outworking of his nature. Have an outworking of his heart. Have an outworking of his mercy. Which father sent his son for those who were his enemies, and that's each one of us. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. When you were yet enemies, Christ came for you. Oh, dear people, we have something to say. 
Because we have been gripped by it. We have something to tell because we have been saved by it. The mercy of God. And would we then not turn? Would we never again turn a blind eye to those who are living in such a way that they will end up in hell if their lives are not changed by the grace of God? And we, we can tell them. Because God has worked that grace in our lives. So that we will act on it. And this week, find someone to tell. Amen. Well, Lord, now we praise you that we might learn something of your great benevolent mercy. That we might see the richness of our salvation and what has been accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. Oh God, when Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, you would have been just, it would have been right for you to say that all of humanity then will end up in hell, every one of them. But you didn't. You had mercy. You were compassionate. And sent your only begotten Son for us. Oh Lord, that we would be gripped by that reality. We who have been gripped by that salvation would know that we have something to say. Work in our hearts. Give to us, Lord, rich thanksgiving and the response that flows to evidence that thanksgiving. Bless us this morning, Lord, further as we take on your supper in a moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The congregation, of course, we love this song and that's appropriate. Let's love it for the biblical reason that we have a story to tell. We'll stand and we'll sing 412.